0: Right, Romans chapter one, and we're going to continue the series. It's going to go for the next several weeks. Kind of kicked off last Sunday with Easter Sunday and the resurrection. Title of the series simply called "Because He Lives." We're going to look over the next several weeks at some of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. I uh, said to someone this morning, or several someones, we were in prayer with the board and uh, was telling them a little story and something that had happened this week. And we were talking about the resurrection. And if it really happened, and I think everyone here believes it did, but if it really happened, people have to make a decision. You know, they, they have to decide. It's one thing to know that we had a savior that died but if he's still in the tomb, it's kind of like, well, that's no big deal. But if he rose, if he really came out of the tomb, people don't want to mess with the God that can raise somebody from the dead. You understand what I'm talking about? Now, all of a sudden, all of the claims of the word need to be reckoned with. And so we're going to talk about some of those implications over the next several weeks. Romans chapter 1 And uh, verse number one, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Verse three, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And this is the verse that I really want to focus on and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word today. Thank you for just a beautiful sense of your presence in this place today. You are here, you are holy, and you are deserving of our worship and our praise of our service, of our giving. You deserve all of that because you are the risen Son of God. I pray, Lord, in these next few minutes that you would help me to speak only that which you would want to be spoken. I pray, God, that I would be fully dependent upon you. And in that, you would anoint me, not because I've earned or deserved, but because I need it to rightly divide the word of truth. Captivate our attention, every mind, every heart, every ear in this place today. Let us hear with spiritual ears what the Holy Spirit would say to us. May it challenge us, may it convict us, may it draw us closer to you. In these moments that we share together today, I pray. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There was a Good Friday service that took place just a few years ago in Dampara Baptist Church in Chittagong, Bangladesh. And um, on this Good Friday, the little building was packed. Little children were sitting on the floor in the aisles and across the front of the church. Place was so full that rows of people stood in the back craning their necks to see the crucifixion scene as depicted in the Jesus film. If you're not familiar with the Jesus film, it's an evangelistic tool that many missionaries are using to take to places where they've never even heard the story of Jesus and that was the case here. And so people are watching as this person is crucified. Weeping and gasp of unbelief could be heard in the shocked hush as Jesus was crucified. As the Bengalis watched, they were feeling the agony of Jesus's pain and the disappointment of the disciples who watched as their hopes were crucified on a cross. In that very emotional, highly tense moment, one young boy In the crowded church suddenly cried out, do not be afraid. He gets up again. I saw it before. There was a calm that filled that sanctuary. It was a small boy's encouraging cry that gave new hope to the viewers of the film. He is risen was the cry that gave new hope to everyone. The resurrection of Jesus brings hope to all of humanity. Last week on Easter, we began this series because He lives. We'll conclude on Pentecost Sunday as we celebrate the implications, the benefits, and the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Today we look at the opening words of Paul when he wrote to the Romans. I want to read it again to you, it's just four verses. Paul, who is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. I should note a few things about these four verses just as a kind of an opening statement. First of all, Paul said he was called to preach the gospel. Um, that had been promised or had been foretold. The gospel that Paul was preaching was what the Old Testament prophets had spoken about. People didn't understand it clearly. Paul wasn't developing a brand new gospel. He was preaching the gospel that had been promised ahead of time. Secondly, he says the gospel is about one person gospel is not about the latest trend, the latest fad. It's not about how you feel or someone else feels. It's not about one's emotions. The gospel is about one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he says that the gospel is rooted in and reveals, and this is interesting, the dual nature of Jesus. He was he was dual in nature. Notice what Paul says, that Jesus was born according to the flesh. The word flesh is the Greek word sarks. The word sarks or flesh always speaks of the transitory, that which is weak. And so he is speaking of the humanity of Jesus. That's why he can sympathize with you. That's why he feels what we feel is he was born in the sarks, in the transitory, in the weakness of human flesh. But then he says he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead, the dual nature of Jesus. He was born in the flesh so he could feel with us, but he was declared to be not just a human, but the son of God. And that declaration came in the resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus is not just a gentle, kind, compassionate, historical figure or teacher. He is the powerful son of God that was revealed by the resurrection from the dead. I don't know how many of you are familiar with what we kind of shorten it and call it the Phillips Translation. It was a popular Bible translation a few years back. J.B. Phillips was an Anglican preacher. He died actually in 1982, and he translated the whole New Testament. And it's kind of a fun translation. It's pretty simple to read. It brings out some interesting insight. But he also wrote a book in 1953 that was titled, Your God is Too Small. I want to paraphrase the title of that book for this message today and simply say this, the church's Jesus is too small. We have shrunk Jesus down to our size. We have made him to be like one who is moved by whims, and who has shortcomings, and who has moments of nervousness and anxiety, the church's Jesus has become too small. Leon Morris wrote some really powerful words. I want to read them to you. He said, while Jesus was fully man, in fact, perfect man, man as God had intended man to be, he was also fully God. And he goes on to say, this fact that he was fully God was perfectly demonstrated by his bodily resurrection. The power to defeat death and rise again is beyond all human ability. Only the creator of life, the God who imposed death as the penalty for sin, could defeat death. Christ's bodily resurrection supported historically as it is by many infallible proofs is the crowning proof that he is indeed the eternal and unique son of God. Look at me for just a moment. What makes Jesus different from any other claim, from any other God, is that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. That moment when he came out of the tomb, it was the moment that God said to the world, he is not like anyone else. He is my son. Three implications. I'm going to share them with you very quickly this morning of the resurrection of Jesus that we see in this text. Number one, the resurrection establishes the exclusivity of Jesus as the only means to salvation. If you've been around a while, you know I like that word. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. Exclusivity. It just means he's exclusive. It's just a fun word to say. But the resurrection establishes that he is the only way. The exclusivity of Jesus as the only means to salvation. Look at what Paul writes Romans Romans 1.4. He says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God and, and what declared it? By the resurrection from the dead. Now that word declared is the Greek word horizo. Look at it for a moment. You can see what word we get from that horizon. The Greek word is horizo, and it means to set a boundary, to to a point, to have a definite point, to mark out the limits of a definite point or a place. That's what a horizon is. It is a definite boundary, it is a definite point. Here Paul uses that word and says that the resurrection of Jesus marked out the boundaries of how he stands apart from anyone else. No one else can go over that line. The resurrection of the dead was the harizo. Nobody can get beyond that. That was the definite point that made Jesus different from all others. It marked him out as standing alone by his resurrection from the dead. He is definitely, irrefutably, conclusively marked out as the Son of God the moment he rose from the dead. If there was any question prior to that, on that third day when the tomb was empty, it was the declaration. This is the definite point, he is the Son of God. William Barrick related this story. He said this, the age of reason was dawning, This would have been probably during the French Revolution, it would have been in the anti-Christian intellectual, Lapo was his name. Lapo was desperate for advice because he had created a new religion. It was a rational religion. It appealed to the intellect. But Lapo told French foreign minister Charles Marus de Talleyrand that despite his new religion's superiority to Christianity, it had failed to catch on. He didn't understand why, because he had created this, this intellectual religion that appealed to the reason. It was the age of the reason. Everybody wanted to be intellectual, and he was moaning, bemoaning the fact that his religion had not caught on and he wondered if Mr. Talleyrand might have any suggestions. Mr. LePoe, the diplomat dryly replied, to ensure success for your new religion, you need only two things. Arrange to have yourself crucified, and three days later, rise from the dead. You see, there's something about the resurrection that marked out this definite point. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can accomplish that. He was declared to be the exclusive son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That's what makes Jesus stand out. He's the exclusive way. There is no other way. Look at me, despite what culture says. A very sad survey in October of 2021 from Probe Ministries that found that 70% of born-again Christians believe that one can get to heaven through Jesus Christ or another religion. On a follow-up question, what asked them, when they were asked what prevents them from communicating their faith to unbelievers, close to 70%, same number of born-again Christians said, because there are other ways to heaven aside from turning to Christ for salvation. You wonder why the church doesn't reach lost people. Seven out of 10 that call themselves Christians don't think that testifying about Jesus' exclusivity is even worth the time because there are other ways to get to heaven. Folks, I hope you understand that is a diabolical lie from the very pit of hell. There is but one way to heaven and eternal life, and that is through the declared to be Son of God, Jesus Christ. Say amen if you believe that. The resurrection says that that seven out of 10 are wrong. The resurrection set him apart as the Son of God and the exclusive way to salvation. Listen to the words of Peter when he was challenged about healing the lame man in Acts chapter three. They said, what are you doing healing this lame man? What are you doing accomplishing that kind of miracle? And here's what Peter said, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you all crucified, he said, but God raised him from the dead by him This man stands here before you whole. In other words, Peter said, I didn't heal him. It's the Jesus that you crucified, that God raised from the dead, that healed him. This is the stone which was rejected by you, builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And then Peter makes it really clear, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The resurrection establishes Jesus as the exclusive means to salvation. Don't let Jesus be too small. He is the only way to the Father. How many believe that to be true? Number two, the resurrection eliminates the impossibilities that loom before broken humanity. There's things that look like we can never get past them are eradicated by the resurrection of the dead. Romans 1, 4, again, declared to be the son of God. Look at this with power. Power to turn, if you can back it up one screen, let me finish that. Power to turn that which is impossible into a reality of victory. That's the power. Of the res- resurrection, those things that once seemed impossible, because Jesus rose from the dead, there are no impossibilities. Listen to what Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to... Now look at this. Everybody look right here for just a minute. He's begotten us to a living hope. It's a hope that we have every day, it's alive. It's a hope that keeps us moving, it stirs us. He has begotten us again to a living hope. How did that living hope come? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just make that very simple. Again, I may be oversimplifying this, but if if God can raise Jesus from the dead, wouldn't we assume that God can do anything? Say Amen, if you believe that's the whole point. So now we have a living hope because of the resurrection. That tells me there are there is nothing beyond the realm. A possibility. So we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. If need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with inexpressible joy, full of glory, living hope. That's an actual, practical, relevant hope. Because of the resurrection, we have a living hope. So in those seasons that we are tested by fire and trials, how many have ever had trials and seasons of testing? We can rejoice in those because of the resurrection, of Jesus. I gonna, wasn't gonna do this, I'm just gonna give you a little quick insight into Pastor Kevin on Sunday mornings um, that you may or may not want to know, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. Sunday mornings for 37 years have been my most difficult morning. And I took me about 35 years, but I figured out that was just the enemy attack on Sunday morning, but they are difficult mornings. I, I always get up very early, and I'll just tell you, when I wake up out, out of bed in the morning on a Sunday morning, there's often this sense of kind of gloom, like, man, I got to do this again, and I hope I'm up to the task, and I, man, I don't know if anybody's listening. I don't, I don't know if I'm good at this anymore, and all of those things. I, I, I'm serious. I feel that every Sunday morning. It's usually dark, I'm driving to get my coffee, and uh, I'm just quiet, don't even turn music on. I just, and... But as I begin to pray, I always pray, God, I thank you that I have the opportunity today to preach about a Jesus who's alive. I'm going to tell my people, I hope you don't mind being called my people just because I'm your pastor, I get to tell them that because of the resurrection, it doesn't matter what they feel, it doesn't matter what they're going through, there's hope. And so I thank you that no matter what I feel right now, I know there's hope. And as I begin to confess that, as I begin to pray that way, by the time I walk out here shaking hands, I'm not putting it on. I am ready to go. In fact, I told somebody, where are the people? Let's get this thing started. I'm ready to preach. But I'm telling you, Sunday morning is a real spiritual battle early. That's how the enemy works. He works on your minds, he, he tries to discourage you, he tries to depress you, he tries to tell you that what you're going through, there is no way out of. And can I tell you, if Jesus was still in the tomb, I wouldn't have any real hopeful words for you. But I'm just telling you, three days later, he came out. And if God can get him out three days later, he can take my silly little emotions on a Sunday morning and bring joy to fill my life. He can walk you through a trial. He can walk you through a difficulty because the resurrection of Jesus declared him with power to say there is nothing beyond the realm of possibility. Say amen if you believe that. You see... um, We know that what we're feeling or going through isn't the final word because of the resurrection. Paul says death was the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. So the implication is if he defeated the last enemy, then every enemy prior to that has been defeated. That knowledge gives me hope. It means that my sickness is not the final word. It means that my child's rebellion is not the final words. It means that my estranged relationships are not the final word. If the grave was not the final word for Jesus, then because of his resurrection, I have hope in every situation. Things that seem impossible are eliminated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How many believe that this morning? A.W. Tozer, said, I cannot give in to the devil's principal deceitful tactic which makes so many Christians satisfied with an Easter celebration instead of experiencing the power of his resurrection. It is the devil's business to keep Christians mourning and weeping with pity beside the cross instead of demonstrating that Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in prison because of his faith, standing against Hitler's atrocities, said this, Socrates mastered the art of dying, but Christ overcame death as the last enemy. I want you to get this, there is real difference between the two things. To master the art of dying, the one is within the scope of human possibilities, the other means resurrection. It's not from ars moriende, which means the art of dying, but from the resurrection of Christ, that a new and purifying wind can blow through our present world. If a few people really believe that and acted on it in their daily lives, a great deal would be changed. To live in light of the resurrection, that's what Easter means. A lot of people master the art of dying. Jesus conquered death. What have you thought was impossible? What have you thought could never be any other way? Time Magazine has a regular column called 10 Questions and readers are given an opportunity to interview celebrities and world leaders through questions submitted via email. In March of 2010, in the issue of Time, South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the author of Made for Goodness, was featured. One of the questions submitted to him went like this. After all you've seen, if you know anything about Bishop Tutu and what he experienced, it was horrific you apartheid. After all you've seen and endured, are you really as optimistic as your book, Made for Goodness, As you are? And Tutu said, I am not optimistic, no. I'm quite different. I'm hopeful. I'm a prisoner of hope. In the world, you have very bad people, Tutu said. Hitler, Idi Amin. And they look like they're going to win. But then he said, all of them, all of them have bitten the dust. I like that, bitten the dust. They all died. But Jesus Christ arose and is still alive. His hope is in the resurrection of Christ, Tutu's, and ours can be too. It eliminates every impossibility of this broken world. Number three, and I'll quit. Uh, The resurrection expects surrendered worship from all of humanity. Look at verses three and four again together. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is not just the son of man born of the seed of David. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the resurrected Son of God, and the cosmic majestic ruler. He is Lord over all. How many believe Jesus is Lord over all? This is the essence of what Paul was trying to say in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 8, and being found in the appearance of man, Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalted Jesus in the resurrection so that every knee would bow. He's Lord of all and every tongue would confess. The resurrected and exalted Son of God, look, is deserving of our worship. Don't let him be too small in your life. Don't don't come into church and say, I'm only going to worship if I really like those songs, or I'm only going to engage if I'm really feeling it. That's making Jesus too small. He's the Lord of all. He's the cosmic ruler of the universe, and he deserves your surrendered worship and mine. Timothy Keller said, worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. How much is Jesus worth to you? How much is he worth to you? Everyone in this room would have spent eternity in hell had Jesus not died for you. So how much is he worth to you? Is he worth making worship a priority? Is he worth making time alone with him a priority? Is he worth making church a priority and service and giving and and prayer? Is he worth that to you or is he not worth that to you? You're not worshiping him unless you are seeing what he is worth and giving him what he is worth. I love this story. Cracks me up, especially in the culture of our day. And this was only in 2009 but Kim Kane told this story in Fiji. She writes this, in Fiji, singing hymns can get you in trouble. About 1 million, yes, Methodists in 2009 live in the South Pacific Island country. And each summer, 20 to 50,000 of them gather for a conference. Before the conference begins, they have this massive choral contest. About 10,000 people participate. They sing hymns. That's it. Hymns. That's it. But in July of 2009, the government shut them down. No choral contest this year. The government said there's a lot of turmoil in Fiji and the government feared that big crowd might get out of hand according to news reports. Church officials said the government fears the conference and the singing contest will lead to further political instability. And then she writes, nothing like singing Methodists to make a government nervous. But then she says this, they're onto something there. Christians worshiping the Lord really are dangerous. Although perhaps not as these officials fear. Worshiping God in Christ upsets world systems. It is revolutionary, it is subversive because it brings another kingdom into view. It says that one day when we worship Him, when we surrender all to him, we are saying one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Pastor Clayton, if you wanna come, if you wanna stand with me, you can this morning. So John, you know about John the Revelator, he's on the island of Patmos. And um, he's there because of his faith. He was preaching about Jesus. They killed many of the disciples. They just put him on an island and exiled him there. He has a vision. This is what the book of Revelation is. And in that vision, he saw there was one seated on a throne. And um, he was holding in his hand a scroll that had seven seals we find out later in the book of revelation that when those seals were removed, the plan of god for all eternity was revealed so inside that scroll was the plan of god which included the wrath of god and john said They were looking for somebody to open that scroll for God who was seated on the throne and no one was found worthy. There wasn't a single person that could open that scroll and John said, "Uh, I wept much. Here's God's plan but nobody can open it up and reveal it to us. Nobody's found worthy. And then the One of the elders that was around the throne said, John, just just relax a minute. Don't weep. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed. To open the book and to loose the seals thereof. The lion. And so John said, I looked in the midst of the throne. Look at this. And the four living creatures in the midst of the elders. He's looking for a lion. Stood a lamb wasn't a lion it was a lamb who had been slain but standing how many know slain animals do not stand do you know that but this slain animal stood having seven horns seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out on all the earth was the resurrected lord and then he came john says look the next screen took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands, those thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, received power and riches, within, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which was in heaven and on earth and under the earth, as much as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever the resurrection expects indeed it demands surrendered worship from all humanity one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before the Lord I shared this story with you several years ago I'm going to just share it real quickly with you I don't know how many of you know the name Christopher Hitchens, he was a devout atheist. He did a lot of debating with some great men of God. But he had a friend who was a Christian who was an author by the name of Larry Taunton. And he uh, asked him to arrange a series of debates between himself and some good Christian thinkers. And so they developed a relationship over the years. It was an unlikely relationship, this avowed atheist and this godly Christian author. They took long road trips together across America. And on one of those trips, Taunton describes, he said, my mind goes back to the Shenandoah. The skies are clear, the autumn leaves are translucent. In the early afternoon sun and the road ahead of us is open in a strong, clear voice, Christopher Hitchens. Was dying of cancer. He's reading from the 11th chapter of John, verse 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said to Martha. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he said to Martha, Believest thou this? And he read that. And he stops and he said, I know this one too. I just didn't recall, Hitchens said, its connection to the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a great verse, Taunton said. Sensing that we had reached a defining moment. Yes, Dick Hitchens thought so too. And then he adds, taking his glasses off, he looks at me and he says, Believest thou this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do, Christopher, but you already knew that. Question is, do you believe thou this? And then he writes, as if searching for a clever response, he hesitates and he speaks with an unexpected transparency. I'll admit that it's not without appeal to a dying man. Hitchens acknowledged that there's great appeal in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and knowing that there is no end because of his victory over death. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a holy role model, the risen Lord and master of the universe. And every situation in your life is who he is. Do not let your Jesus you small. Bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you for your word today. And there are some, Lord, in this place today that are facing great battles. They're not sure how they're going to get through. But the resurrection of Jesus from the dead declares that there is nothing impossible that there is hope even beyond the grave for the child of God. And the resurrection of Jesus demands of us our fully surrendered worship. Would you speak to every heart today, I pray. In Jesus' name, with your heads bowed for just a moment. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're not serving God. Maybe you've been like that avowed atheist, Christopher Hitchens. And you just haven't had time for God. You just haven't been able to come to terms with the resurrected Christ. But if you were here last week, you may have heard, or maybe you have read, really his resurrection is pretty verifiable. And if it's true, it forces us to make a decision. But maybe you're here today and the question is, do you believe it? It's not enough for me to believe it. It's not enough for your friend and your family, your husband, your wife, your son and your daughter to believe it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Kevin, I don't know Jesus, but I want to today, would you just slip up your hand right where you're at? Is there anyone in this room? would say, would you pray for me? I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Anyone in this place this morning? Anyone in this room? Let me ask you this question, and with heads still bowed, how many would say, I am facing some things that look impossible, but I know because Jesus has risen, it's not impossible. And just by an upraised hand, I'm going to affirm that I'm going to get through this, I know that there is hope even if not in this life. I know there is eternal life. And I'm trusting him because he was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. How many would say, I'm trusting God right through my trial, right through my difficult spot? And how many would say, I recognize he is deserving of all of my surrendered worship. And I just want to say to him today, I give you that worship. I know what you're worth. I'm going to give you what you're worth in my worship. Help me you raise your hand.